Today, my guest, I'm delighted to say, is the legend Matt Dixon. Matt, you may uh, know from the Challenger sale, he and his uh, research team put together something quite spectacular there. But he's recently released another book called The Jolt Effect. Um, What's really interesting and has captured my imagination is the possibility that in the next quarter, I can find a 32% uplift hidden in the data that already exists and not have to spend a single penny on trying to find new prospects. So Matt, welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, um, you're a little magician here. Being able to gift that at the end (laughs) of um, a pretty tough year is really insightful. So why don't you just give maybe 60 to 90 seconds on your history, first of all, so people know a bit about you. So I am a, I call myself a refugee from academia. So I, uh, what I mean by that is I, I went after university to go uh, pursue a, a doctorate political economy, got about halfway through, fell victim to the sunken cost fallacy and decided to stick it the rest of the way out. Uh, so that I always had that as a fallback <laughs> career, but I, I knew right then uh, at the midway point that I really didn't want to be an academic or at least not a traditional sense, but I, I did love research. But I want to do it in a more applied settings. And, and I think some of the areas that always fascinated me were customer behavior, how companies can improve the way they interact with customers, both in uh, sales, uh, as we'll talk about today, but also in the post-sales environment, delivering a great experience to those customers who've already bought your product or service. So I spent most of my career, about 20 years, at a company called uh, CEB, which was then acquired a few, uh, few years ago by Gartner. And I ran the sales and customer experience research practices there. Now I'm a founder of a new company called DCM Insights, where we're also doing, doing large-scale research projects like, like what's profiled in the Jolt Effect, which we're going to talk about today. Tell us a little bit about the research that you did there, because let's put it into context, because it's quite a mammoth piece of data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. we were the beneficiaries, I think, uh, Marcus, of the I guess there are a few beneficiaries like Netflix and, and uh, Peloton and these kinds of companies that did okay for a little while. When we uh, saw this as a kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to study sales in a new way. Like I, I've always been a big admirer of uh, Professor Neil Rackham's work in spin selling and, and uh, really think that for, for sales researchers like myself, that was always the gold standard. But you know what Professor Rackham did was so labor-intensive uh, with a team of you know 10 to 12 people traveling the world for a decade sitting in physically on, on tens of thousands of sales conversations, I could just never find anybody willing to pay, pay, pay our freight to go do that research. So, um, so it was always a, uh, it, know, it would ruin your, uh, what's it carbon footprint as well nowadays. Wouldn't it? it would, it would, it would, I guess it'd be great for my mileage balance and my, uh, like, you're right. It would be, it would be, I'd be single-handedly contributing. The, the to IRS would be problems. after you for taking benefits in kind as well. Yeah, but, you're right. You're right. So air miles. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I fast forward to March of 2020. As everyone remembers in sales, um, the world of sales went 100% virtual, literally in the blink of an eye. So all sales conversations, not just, and, and to be honest, we were using Zoom and Teams and other platforms like that before the pandemic. But I think what salespeople would agree to is that the way we use that was really for those maybe more commonplace or mundane parts of the sale. But the really important sales meetings still took place in the client's office. But that all changed in March of 2020. And so uh, Ted McKenna, my co-author on The Jolt Effect, he and I decided this was a great opportunity to study sales in the way that Professor Rackham had, but to use modern technology. So we partnered with several dozen companies 
across industry and collected from those companies about two and a half million recorded sales calls over the span of about 18 months. We use a machine learning platform from a company called Tether that basically takes unstructured data and allows you to bring structure to it and study it, bring statistical analytics to bear to study that data. That was the data set that we used to do our research. So again, I I don't know what the future holds in terms of virtual selling, but I I think that when I talk to salespeople, they're getting back out there at events. They're going to visit clients again. Um, And this may have been a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we we were excited to have been able to take advantage of it. We actually called the project when we launched it, the sales vaccine project. We figured if the scientists could come up with a vaccine for COVID, then maybe we can figure out what's wrong with sales. And you know, okay. So let's talk about what the the jolt effect is. But before yeah. we do that, let's look at the context. There is a very large chunk of business that is sat within virtually every organization's CRM and customer success dialogues that is made up of closed, lost, no decision. And these are people who have the money, have the will, have the ability, but someone somewhere, for some reason, is not putting ink on contract. Now, for those of you in sales with Pipeline, just go back over the last two years and tot up what that looks like in terms of actual revenue. And after this, make sure that the first thing you do is build that list, identify all of the people who are likely to be involved in that decision, and then get on the blower and start phoning those people up. And we'll give you a tip at the end on how you can rekindle about 32% of your current pipeline. Just bring it back to life. Well said. I mean, that, that's a scary thought, isn't it, for the average seller? Um, and I, maybe, maybe because that's not depressing enough, we'll turn the screws one more, <laughs> one more, uh, one more turn here. <laughs> so, so they're we found <laughs> they are tough, they're thick skin. So, we found in our research, uh, two and a half million sales calls. We found that anywhere between forty and sixty percent, depending on the the industry or the business of opportunities are lost to no decision. And it's it's exactly what you've described, Marcus, is the the customer where it's ultimately marked as closed loss, no decision. What's interesting about this, if you peel this back a couple of more layers, is the vast majority, it's not, ju- it's not just that they have the need and they have the budget and, and alignment. It's actually the vast majority of these are customers who've also stated their intent to buy from you. They've engaged then in a full sales process with you and for I think a lot of your listeners, my suspicion is that it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be quarters or years, depending on the the intensity or the complexity of the solution we're selling to the customer. If you think about that, you know the amount of time lost at, for you as a salesperson to say nothing of the customer's own time that they've devoted to this effort to ultimately do nothing, and that was really the big question. And you've teed it up really well here. And it, it's the same thing we recommend. You really do need to go back and look add your own pipeline and, and think about those deals you've lost to no decision. It is the big question we were after, which is what would possess somebody to go through an entire purchase process and then do nothing to, to waste all of the your time as a salesperson, your team's time on your side, as well as the customer's own time and their, the time of their own organization, only to do nothing. And, and more importantly, what do the best salespeople do differently to avoid that? And that was the, that was the, the, the lens through which we looked at that big data set. Now, 
again, for those of you who followed my material for some time, you're going to be familiar with the drama triangle and the winner's triangle. The, dramas, uh, the drama triangle is a triangle on its point with the victim voice at the bottom, the persecutor on the top left, the rescuer on the top right. And nothing good comes from the drama triangle. Ego thrives on drama. Now, when people are in the drama triangle, their amygdala is being triggered and they are stuck either in the past or worrying about the future. And when the amygdala gets triggered, there are four responses. Most of you typically hear freeze, flight, or fight. Yep. But there is a fourth response, which is a directly related to what Matt is going to explain in a minute, which is flocking. Under pressure, it's natural for human beings to seek solace and support from other people to at least give them comfort. When you were dumped last, what was the first thing you did? You probably phoned a friend <laughs> and then went down the pub and you socialized and wept on their shoulder because it helps to have that support. So, Matt, explain to us why ratcheting up fear of missing out or trying to dial up the better future is exactly the wrong strategy. Yeah, I, I quite like that construct, that drama triangle. So the uh, that's that's um, a good uh, that's a good lens, I think, um, for this. In it, I think it speaks into what we found. So uh, one, yeah, I think if we took a step back and we said, well, what do most salespeople do when that customer starts to show signs of disengagement? They maybe start to ghost us. They start to go radio silent. Perhaps they're still responding to our emails, but they do it in a very curt fashion and, and intermittently at best. And not in the very you know free-flowing love fest we had early on, but in a very kind of, it's yeah. like, like you said, it's the, the signals you get from your partner that things are about to end. <laughs> so salespeople are very familiar with these moments. And, and I think what they've been taught for a very long time is exactly what you just said, is that the only reason that that's happening is you fail to conquer the customer's status quo. They are either they believe what they do today is good enough, or they believe that what you're talking about is not a compelling enough alternative, or perhaps they believe it's not a top priority. But the way you overcome that as a salesperson is you dial up the FOMO, the fear of missing out. And, and I'll just provide a little bit more color on this, uh, Marcus. I'd say there are three, we saw three techniques in this analysis that were most prevalent. The first one, was to appeal to the rosy picture of how great things will be after the customer buys your product or service. So the glass half full approach, or maybe the carrot approach, right? Marcus, you must have missed how many zeros were on that ROI calculation and how, how wonderful, you know, did you see the returns that our other customers are getting? And let me take you back into the platform and show you the, the feature you must not be appreciating because it's awesome. It, you know? In parenthesis, what you've just said to me is idiot. That's what I've read for. Quite right. You're quite right. You uh, must. You weren't paying. You weren't paying attention. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well said. That is as we talk, That's a look in the mirror moment because that's basically what you're saying. You're exactly right. And so then, so that that's one technique. The second technique, if that's the carrot approach, is the stick approach, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So what we try to do is we try to get the customer to realize the cost of their inaction. That you know, look, that Marcus, these problems are not going to solve themselves. You know, you told me that. Your customers hate you for this legacy system you make them use. Your employees hate you for making everybody hates you. You know, and they, you can't wish these problems away. And, and your competitors, by the way, we work with all of your competitors and they are experiencing tremendous gains, and you're missing out on this opportunity to, to catch up with them. And you're gonna be left 
know, on this burning platform alone. So we try to get the customer to, to leap from that burning platform and realize that there's a real cost to the status quo. So that's the stick approach. And if those two techniques fail, what we often see salespeople revert to is the disappearing carrot act, which is the 10% discount that's only good this quarter or this month, right? Or, or use other scarcity principles, like we've got limited inventory of this product, or if it's a solution or you know, a technology-based uh, solution, it might be, we've got so much demand right now, the earliest we can install the platform for your company is three quarters from now. And if you wait, it's going to be four quarters from now. So you're, you're only hurting yourself. And so those are the techniques. These are the FOMO-based techniques that we see salespeople pursue. It, that was not surprising, but we see this is quite prevalent, uh, the usage of these, these techniques. But what was surprising to us was that they actually backfire way more often than they, they work out. And specifically, when the customer has stated their intent to move forward, when they've said, I am sold that the status quo, the way they, we do things today is leading to lost growth opportunities, cost leakage, exposing us to risk, forcing us to lose ground to competitors, whatever the, the outcome is. They're sold on the status quo being suboptimal, and they are convinced that you are the solution provider who can rectify this for them. With those customers using this, but still that customer gets cold feet, with those customers using that FOMO technique increases dramatically the likelihood, or those sets of techniques, I should say, the likelihood the customer will end up doing nothing. So you actually make things worse, not better, increasing the odds that the deal will be lost to no decision. And it was puzzling to us as to why it wasn't really clear until we unpacked the data. And what we found was that no decision losses are actually born of two different causes. The first one is the one all salespeople are very familiar with. The customer still prefers their status quo. They are suffering from status quo bias. We all know in sales, it's a very powerful enemy. We've got to defeat it. And you know, we, there have been many, many books written about this. We wrote about this ourselves in the Challenger sale. That is one of the things challengers are quite good at, is showing the customer the pain of same is worse than the pain of change. That is a powerful enemy. And I want to be very clear, you won't sell anything in sales unless you convince the customer to part ways with their status quo. You've got to beat the status quo. But it turns out there's an entirely separate cause of no decision losses. And that is not commitment to the status quo. It's indecision about changing it. And those may sound similar, but if you peel it back one more level, I'll explain why they're not. We found specifically that 56% of the time, so 44% of no decision losses are a function of preference for the status quo, 56% were a function of indecision, and specifically were driven by three different fears that the customer has. One, have I chosen the right configuration? You've put a lot of options in front of me. Have I made the right choice about the way we are going to do business together? Contract length, breadth of the deployment of your solution in my company additional services, I might add, integrations that may or may not be important. Have we structured this actual proposal in the right way? Or am I going to regret what I'm actually purchasing? I should have purchased something else. I should have, I should have added this warranty. I should have added the premium service, and I didn't, and I'm then going to regret that. Two, have I done enough research on your solution, on your competitors, and on this market in general? Because I'm new to this. I may only ever buy a solution like yours once in my entire career. I don't know enough about this, and you know quite a bit. You work in a company that does this for a living. I don't. And so as the old saying goes, caveat uh, emptor, right? Buyer beware. And I need to, it's the next white paper I read that will have all the answers to make me a smart consumer. And the third reason, the third source or third fear is the customer worried that they will be left holding the bag. And what I mean specifically is that they won't see the returns that you're promising uh, or you're projecting. They won't see the ROI. They won't see the the improvement in top line growth, the, the cost savings, they won't see the risk mitigation, they won't see the benefits. 
Now, if we look at those things, again, those things are 56% of no decision losses. And so if I were to summarize, what I would say is it's not actually our inability to dial up the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, it's actually our inability to dial down the FOMO, which is the fear of messing up. These are customers who are convinced to part ways with the status quo, but nevertheless are worried, have I picked the right configuration? Have I done enough research? And do I have any assurance of success from this vendor? Am I going to look like a hero or am I going to look like a fool? And, and as we know, in today's environment, there's arguably nothing a customer can relishes less than the idea of misallocating or deploying their company's money and resources on a solution or a product or service that doesn't pan out. That is a very bad look in the current environment. So again, let's bring it back to stuff that the audience is going to likely to be familiar with. So back to that yeah. drama triangle. Remember, ego thrives on drama. And the more people start to catastrophize, because that's exactly what's happening, they're anticipating buyer's remorse. They're anticipating regret or blame, egg on their face, reputation <laughs> damage, career limiting, could be a career limiting decision. So for them, it's their livelihood. Yes. It's the people that they spend 12, 14, 16 hours a day with more mm -hmm. than their families. It's their future. It's their mortgage. For you, it's a transaction. If you turn up and you are unprepared, shame on you. If you don't understand the context in which you are selling your product and you're just a feature function monkey and you're just turning up, ratcheting up the features and functions and all of that all over again, no wonder you're getting low conversion rates. And remember, yeah. The three highest hidden costs in any business I've ever worked in are, number one, wrong hires, okay? Mm -hmm. Number two, hidden cost of sale. Mm -hmm. And God knows the amount of hidden costs that you incur because you blow these deals. And that's 33% of those deals, of the 60%, yeah, could convert into business. They're viable. They want it. And you're in the way. Yeah. So you yeah. have to look in the mirror. And you also have to understand that this anticipated buyer's remorse is very real. Because yes. when buyers are buying, what they're doing is they're making a trade-off at the, that decision point. And they're making a series of trade-offs. Do we go for four bedrooms or five? Do we need a second bathroom? Does it have to be en suite? Does it have to have a driveway? Does it have to have a garage? You're making all these trade-offs and you're deciding against you know, two, three options. And when it's uncertain, when it's unfamiliar, you're up against mankind's basic human drivers, human needs, and certainty is one of them. And mm -hmm. if they are uncertain that they're going to get the ROI, if they're uncertain that they're going to be left holding the baby, if they're uncertain that they're going to make the right decision and it's going to backfire, they're not yep. going to put their one dis their one signature on the contract. If they say no, it's everybody's decision and mm -hmm. no one's to blame. If they put their signature on the contract, it's them to blame. And that fires their amygdala off. And your job, number one, above everything else, is to keep your amygdala quiet so it doesn't trigger theirs. Because when you smell of despair and neediness, they're picking up on it. Is that yeah. a fair summary? Yeah, it's very well said.
I really like that, those connections. And you're quite right. It is really, when we think about it, and we think about it from the buyer's standpoint, I presented this a few weeks ago. I was in uh, San Francisco for a conference and I had somebody come up to me afterward and it was a VP of sales from a big software company that I think many of your listeners would be familiar with. They probably use their products every single day. And she came up to me afterward and said, I just realized that we do this all the time to our customers, which is uh, we dial up the drama. We catastrophize, as you said, we, we appeal to the FOMA. We try to create the burning platform. She said, I did that to a customer right before I came to your talk. And she said, we told them the price was going to go up and then they had to join now. And we had a limited deployment window and all these things. And And what I realized when you were presenting was, if I'm the customer and I'm thinking about missing out an opportunity to get a 10% discount versus potentially losing my job, turns out they care more a lot more about losing their job. Or even if we dialed it down a little bit, just it's just looking like a fool in front of your colleagues, which nobody likes. But let's be honest, in the current environment, you're quite right that, as we say in the book, nobody gets fired for maintaining the status quo, but people do get fired for putting their name on an agreement to change it. And if that doesn't work out, especially in the current environment where there's so much scrutiny on big, risky decisions, that is a very risky proposition for your customer. And again, think of it. Just put yourself in the customer's skin. Think as the customer for a moment. Yeah. If someone who you've gone through this long process with, you've been intimate because you will undoubtedly have yes. disclosed confidences. And you thought this person had your back. And right at the last minute, frankly, they're just buttering you up and putting you over a barrel for a very uncomfortable bit of pressure. And then you expect them to respond favorably. You would not do that. And how dare you even assume that that's okay as a human being? I think the thing that's been taken away from us because of the way Everything has been over-indexed towards the financial and the rapid growth and the exit. The customer's been a, become a forgotten afterthought. These are human beings, living, breathing, mostly sentient human beings who are packed full of emotion. And mm-hmm. the decision they are about to make has massive ramifications, not just for them. If you're dealing with enterprise-level deals, we're talking about big money, If they screw up, it's not just their job, it's hundreds of other jobs. It could be the future of that business. If they're putting in a CRM on the ERP, that's the single source of record for the entire Mm -hmm. business upon which every decision is meant to be made. You make a bad decision on that, can derail the whole thing. How dare you turn up and expect customers to take your crap? So what would you suggest instead? Listen, I think it's, again, it's very it's very well said. It, this is a look in the mirror moment, I think, as you and I have talked about uh, for salespeople around the world is, it is an overused term, I think sometimes, but are we being customer centric and thinking about our customer as a human being and, and what's going through their mind and, and what is actually holding them up? And if we actually thought about it from the customer perspective, I think what we'd realize is, you know, there's a very clear reason that using those FOMO tactics, those those fear-based tactics on somebody who's already scared is actually a recipe for disaster, you know? And and actually we've got to take quite a different approach. And so, you know, um, if we think about, now again, I want to be very, very clear, beating the status quo is is sort of job one for the the salesperson. They've they've got to overcome the gravitational pull of the status quo. We know our customers will pass up on better opportunities simply to keep doing what they're doing because people are, fundamentally lazy. They don't like change. They were averse to change. And so we've got to 
beat the status quo. But at the same time, we've got to understand that once the status quo is put to bed, the customer stops obsessing about it and what they're worried about instead is making a mistake, right? Uh, and, and so we need two playbooks of sales. Beating the status quo is about dialing up the cost of, uh, of inaction, but overcoming indecision is about dialing down the cost of action, right? It's about overcoming not the status quo bias, but what's called the omission bias, which is the fear of making a mistake. Now, the playbook, as um, your listeners would know, and if they don't yet know, check it out in the book, uh, The Jolt Effect. Jolt is actually an acronym. And so I'm going to maybe quickly walk through the, the four, just tell people what it stands for. And then we can we can go wherever you want. We can unpack each one, talk about each one a little bit. But it's an acronym. It stands for four behaviors that we identified in the research, in these data uh, that we analyze, these sales conversations, four behaviors that high performers use to avoid no decision losses. J stands for judging the level of indecision. It's about diagnosing the extent to which this customer has any hopes of, of making a decision and also what it'll take to get them to a decision. O is about offering a recommendation. That's about dealing with these problems customers struggle with about what should I choose? Have I made the right choice? There's everything in a world where everything looks good, that's a customer who chooses nothing, right? Better to not choose anything because then I avoid making the mistake of choosing the wrong thing. L is about limiting the exploration. We know our customers will consume content endlessly because they want to be informed. They want to be experts on this decision we're asking them to make, especially as that decision becomes more risky, more disruptive. There's more scrutiny, more eyes on that decision, more attention paid to it. They're going to do a lot more research. And so how do we get them to stop trying to be an expert and start trusting us as an expert? And then T is taking risk off the table. So remember, we talked about before this idea of outcome uncertainty. I don't know if I'll get what I'm paying for. I don't know if we'll see the benefits that you're projecting. How do we get the customer to feel like there is a safety net here, that we've got their back, that they're actually in good hands, and that they're not going to look like a fool. They're going to look like a hero uh, for buying our solution. That is the jolt effect. Again, we like it because it's memorable, but it also speaks to what's happening here. Our customer is stuck. They're stuck in their own indecisive state. And the salesperson's job is to jolt them forward, uh, to move them toward a decision. So again, we can we can unpack those in a little bit more detail if, you, if you'd like. I'd like to challenge one thing sure. that you said. What you said was people fear change. I, I don't believe that. I think people don't fear change. They fear the uncertainty that comes with it. And this speaks directly to the jolt effect, because... Mm-hmm. If you don't understand what the real indecision is and what its cause is, then there's no way you're going to allay that uncertainty. There's no way you're going to be able to mitigate that risk because you don't know what the hell you're looking for. And this is why you have to go into heavy nurturing, heavy diagnosis. And this is where you probably want to eat a little bit of humble pie and say, you know, something's troubling me. And... I think it's me. What have I missed? There must be a reason that you're hesitating. And Mm. then point to the area. Is it that you doubt the solution? Do you doubt that we can deliver what we said we could deliver? Do you doubt it will work in your context? Do you doubt that your people can adopt it and will implement it? So it'll just become a damp squib. And do you believe that you're going to be left holding the baby or worse, swinging in the wind, and we're going to not have your back? Okay, let's talk about that and then discuss it and then work out. Because your job is to find common ground and build bridges. It's not to try and convince and bully and browbeat and bribe with an end of quarter fireside sale 
yeah, uh, yeah. Your, desk, your pipeline looks like crap. What yeah. you should have is a solid pipeline that you focused on two years ago and you've been building up for a long time so you don't turn up and you don't feel the need to put anyone under pressure. Mm-hmm. You should have done your work. And if you get to this point, it was probably your fault. I agree with you. It's not fear of change. It's actually just aversion to change, but it's not because they're scared of change. It's, it's rather because as human beings, it's easier not to change, right? And it's the principle of conservation of energy. Given two choices, one entails change and one entails doing what you're doing today. It's always easy to, easier to keep doing what you're doing today. So that is a powerful effect, but you're quite right. The fear of change is actually what we're talking about with the jolt effect. It's the I don't actually know right, that I'll see the benefits. I don't actually know that I've made the right choices. I don't actually know that I'm a, gosh, the worst thing in the world would be for me to go put my badge on the table and say, we've got to drop a whole bunch of money on this solution and roll it out across our entire enterprise and drive a huge transformation. And it turns out I just didn't do enough research. And had I done a little bit more research, I would have learned that these things rarely, rarely work out. I would have learned about the pitfalls to avoid and the landmines to avoid stepping on. And I just didn't do it. So now that reflects poorly upon me. So you're right. It is that fear. And to your, to your point, you know, most salespeople, I think, are, are just amplifying that fear by trying to browbeat and scare customers into action. But they're already scared. They're plenty scared. But our, our job is to get them less afraid of moving forward, not, not more afraid of not doing so. And what's interesting is when you are on the final furlong with your nose on the line, blowing it at this point is almost criminal. And so, mm-hmm. again, let's just remind you of the reason why you need to humanize your sales. The price of not doing it is you have to go through the entire life cycle of building the pipeline up again to generate suspects, prospects, qualified prospects, closable prospects, and get them to the finish line. And how many of those do you need to get to the finish line to get one over? Well, the majority, if you're working uh, the RFP world, you'll close one in four. But again, corporate vision research on this is really interesting. Uh, They indicate 60% go to the status quo, but 10.4% end up in RFP. If you only win one in four of those, that means you've got about a 2.6% win rate on sales cycles that have been started, but then it ended up in the RFP process. The other 39.6% end up exactly where the challenger sale says, which is that you have to disrupt their current preferences early in the sale. You've got to create distance between you and the status quo and the competition. You've got to help them build the internal business case. Mm-hmm. Now, again, part of this, and certainly from uh, my experience of dealing with these kind of stalls, is that if their business case is not strong enough and it won't stand up to pushback and scrutiny, they'll throw you under the bus. Mm-hmm. So, again, you need to understand as part of your discovery process what kind of return on investment they need to be 100% convinced they're going to get as the minimum baseline. And I I always used to teach that pain outsells gain by 12 to one and fear outsells gain by five to one. Now, to my mind, that was fine in a world where we taught pain, pain, pain equals dollar, dollar, dollar. But you can't just sell pain. Nowadays, Mm -hmm. it's really very clear that certainly with complex solutions, 
even if you are selling one part of that, it needs to work nicely with other moving parts. Yeah. And this is an area that so few salespeople are taking into any account because it could be this is a great point solution, but what if it doesn't play nicely if the data doesn't cut across, if we start dropping deals because of some lack of interoperability? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these yep. are very real fears. And I don't very think real. people pay any attention to that broader business need and the, yeah. the environment that these people live in. I agree. And, and listen, the, I think the, I've mentioned several times that, um, you yeah, the near term environment, but I think in some ways, I actually think if it's a recession, it may be, or maybe it's just uncertain economic times that we're heading into. Let's hope it's just that, not a recession. But but I think that um, in some ways, most so most salespeople, most suppliers will see a spike in no decision losses, certainly over the next couple of years. I'm already hearing this from companies I spoke to six months ago who are saying dramatic increases in closed loss, no decision. Salespeople are seeing the same thing. Big decisions getting kicked down the, kicked down the road and, and delayed or avoided altogether. And I think we'll see that in the near term, but I think in some respects, it's a, a red herring. And what I mean by that is that there are secular trends at work that are going to make these drivers of no decision losses much worse. So if we think about, for instance, we know the customer struggles with what to choose, but most suppliers out there are putting more and more options in front of their customers, more and more partner integrations, more types of different levels of their platforms, different way to con- ways to configure it. They're acquiring companies that what we're putting on in front of the customers by getting uh, more, more varied, more numerous, more complex you know, by the day. Think about the customer who's worried about not having done enough research. Well, there's more content available today than ever before, and tomorrow there'll be even more than there is today. And so that's a customer who will never actually be able to physically consume all because of bounded rationality, all the information out there, but they want to consume it because they fear if they don't, they won't have done their job, which is leaving no one stone unturned. So then think about the customer effect outcome. Oh, perfect. Exactly. Right. Paralyzing exactly. to do that. Okay. That's, Tell that's me right. this, I'd be really curious if there, uh, if there was any of the data or the research that you did around this. In terms of partner assistance, mm-hmm. did you do any work around partner assisted deals and the impact that they can have on unsticking these deals? There were certainly a fair number of calls. I don't know the exact percentage in that sample where they were partner assisted. And it was kind of co-sold, if you will, or co-brokered with a partner. It's hard to put your finger exactly on what impact a partner had versus a vendor or supplier doing it themselves or doing it directly uh, with the customer, not involving a partner. I think what it did come down was the behaviors. And I think it's quite likely, um, again, not having the exact data in front of me, that some of those behaviors, in some respects, is the partner who's actually bringing some of those things to the table, uh, not the not the actual uh supplier or manufacturer or um, vendor, right? But it, it could very well easily be that partner who's bringing that to the table. So we didn't really identify whether it was more often found in partners, more often found in the salesperson, more often found in the vendor side, the partner side. I think it was whether those skills existed or not. And I think the lesson here for partners is that that is something that you can do when brought into deals to help overcome customer indecision. And especially if your your partner on the vendor side, the salesperson, lacks in those capabilities, then by all means, you need to bring that to the table and, in fact, could be playing quite a powerful role in, in helping avoid a no decision loss. And if you are taking on new partners, when we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, it was really clear from our research and interviews 
that the import, one of the most important things was to get them making money within the first 90 days. Uh, yeah. If you don't, there's about an 85, 90% probability that they will go dark on you. So all the money, time, and effort that you spent recruiting them, provisioning them, training them is yeah. a waste. So one of the first things, if you're going to work closely with your partners, is do some territory planning and mapping. And the first thing I would recommend you do is whip out those closed lost no decisions because there's a gift in there that you can yes. help them. And remember, when you're selling with partners or through partners, your number one job is to identify what they already sell the most of and help them sell more of it because then they will want to bring you in and mm -hmm. they will encourage you and they'll take your calls. So putting this into the context of how do we really apply this? So let's put some meat and uh, gristle onto uh, the bones of this. When you're judging the indecision, what advice would you give going in to prepare yourself psychologically so that you're not allowing your own amygdala hijack and your own catastrophizing inner voice uh, to get in the way? The shorthand I would provide for salespeople is this. There's a time and a place is very important techniques we learn in sales around diagnosis, around looking for customer verification that they are tracking with us. Are we ready to move this deal onto legal or onto procurement? You know, have we gotten consensus? Are you, is your buying process map, mapping with my selling process or am I leaving you far behind in the dust? Those are all important techniques. But indecision is different. In, in our research, we found that it exists in 87% at moderate or high levels in 87% of opportunities. But if you ask your customers, 100% of them would say that they think they're decisive people, though the data shows clearly that they're not. And what that tells us is that these are, it's a little bit like carbon monoxide in sales. It's everywhere, but it's odorless, it's tasteless, it's colorless, and it's very difficult to detect. And so, but we know it's there and we know it has a devastating impact on our conversion rates and our ability to get to a closed deal. And the reason it's difficult to detect, stating the obvious, is these are things that customers are uncomfortable talking about. And these are deep, dark fears. I'm worried that I'm going to look bad signing this agreement because I haven't done enough research. I just don't have time to do all this research. I haven't gotten enough assurance. It could be transformative. But if this blows up, I'll get fired. You know, Or I'll just look like a fool in front of my colleagues. Neither of those things are things that I want. What we have to do in sales is figure out how do we detect this? How do we get it? on the table such that it can be dealt with. And then we can use that as an input for our forecasting, our qualification, disqualification, and figuring out our playbook to, to ultimately close the deal. Now, the technique we use is much like um, the metaphor I'd use for, for listeners is, uh, think of yourself as a, a captain of a surface ship trying to detect a submarine in the water. And we, I'm not a, a naval guy, a submarine warfare guy, but I can tell you there's two ways to do it. One is you listen for noises the submarine is making. And of course, in sales, we can tune our listening to listen for those signs of indecision. We talk a lot about this in the book. But the other technique is when the customer doesn't give us anything to go on, um, we rely not on questions, but rather on a technique, much like in submarine warfare, a ping and in listening for an echo back. And that's in, in naval warfare, that's called active sonar. That is a surface ship sending out a sound, quite literally a ping, and listening for the reflection off of an object in the water, which tells us where it is, how big it is, which direction it's going, et cetera. And that's what the technique we use in sales. So we found that high performers will use this ping and echo technique. And the way they might do that, uh, Marcus, is that if they suspect there's a concern the customer has, they will articulate, try to articulate the fear 
that they think the customer is struggling with and put it on the table such that it can be safely talked about in a comfortable way. So I might say to you, you know, other customers like you really do concern, get concerned that they're not going to see the return on this investment, or they're worried about downstream interoperability of systems and that that could cause what seems like a good idea to end up being a bad investment. And I, again, if you, I don't know if you're worried about that, but if you are, it's quite normal because most of our customers we do business with were at one point also concerned about that. So that makes it such that I could send that ping out to you. And what could ha- what happens is one of two things. Either you say, yeah, that, that actually is a big concern. I, I didn't want to bring it up, but we are kind of worried about this. It's a very tight budgetary environment. If we don't see the benefits, like what assurance can you give us that we'll see that return on investment? Or it may be, no, actually, that's not my concern at all. In fact, my concern is this other thing, right? So it it allows us to get these things from this deep, dark place with the customer onto the table such that it can be discussed. And this is, again, a common theme with the podcast, understanding that vulnerability is a strength. Being willing to put yourself in harm's way and doing it anyway because it's the right thing to do for the customer demonstrates that you put buyer safety above selfish self-interest. That's and right. Buyers That's right. need to know that they have you have their back because yes. almost every other salesperson that has walked past their, walked through their door or has phoned them up and tried to take money from them has put their selfish self-interest before the customer's interests. And the net result of that Remember, as human beings, we've got 3 billion years of evolutionary hardwiring, and you're not going to beat evolution. No matter how clever you think you are, in the end, their limbic system, their gut will tell them that something is awry. And any doubt that they have, even at that late stage, when they want it, when they need it, when they can have it, they won't buy because of you. So get the way. One final word of advice for the audience then. What would you recommend? What one action should they take in the next 24 hours? Yeah, let me actually, if, if it's all right, because I, I like your idea, uh, Marcus, you just shared. Maybe I'll offer two. I think the first piece of advice is this, that this is like sales evolutionary kind of uh, a biology where we've been so ingrained in our thinking as salespeople is that when the customer starts to hesitate, you haven't defeated the status quo, so try to scare them into action using these FOMO tactics. Fear, uncertainty, doubt, you know, paint the rosy projection, dangle the disappearing discount. And I think for us to, at least in sales, the first thing I would say is hit the pause button and ask yourself what could be, uh, aside from the status quo, what else might be holding the customer up? What else might be keeping them from making forward progress? And just that pause, I think, will actually avoid that negative 84% outcome we found that using those FOMO tactics can actually lead to an 84% probability that the deal will be lost in a decision. You sidestep that problem uh, entirely simply by stopping and asking yourself, what else might be going on? And how would I figure that out? Now, I think the other point you brought up, Marcus, just a moment ago is, is really important. And you know, we talk about this idea in the book of limiting the customer's exploration. The customer wants to be an expert, but the reason the customer wants to be an expert is they already know you are an expert as a salesperson but they don't trust you because they feel like you are incentivized, as you said before, to oversell them, to hide the dirty laundry, to not talk about all of the things that don't work with your solution. Your job is to sell the customer more than they need, or at least that's what the customer believes. And so how do we we bridge that principal agent problem or that that trust gap that exists? And what we found is, and this is a very tactical piece of advice, 
best salespeople will seek moments early on in the sale to build that credit, that trust. And the way they do it, will, which is they will tell the customer, you know, Marcus, I know you're talking about this. I, I could be honest, I don't think you need the premium version of our solution. I think the basic version would be just fine for your needs. I know you're excited about that integration, but I've got to be honest, it's early days and the early adopters there have struggled a little bit to get the value out of that. I don't want you to build your business case around that because it's not quite ready for prime time. Or, you know, I would love to do business with you. It'd be fantastic for us. We'd love to add your logo to our, our list of customers. However, based on what you're looking for, I actually don't know that we're the best partner for you. In fact, I think it might be those guys over there. Those moments tell the customer that your goal is not to oversell them. It's not to hide the ball. It is to get them to a good decision, whether that's buying from you or not buying from you or staying the course or changing, right? And that, let's finish on that. The definition that I think you and I both share by the sounds of things of selling is the job of the seller is to facilitate the right decision for the customer. Exactly. Yeah. Whether well it's said. today and for the future, whether it involves you or not in the end, that's your job. Uh, and that's, that's right. what decent human beings would do, not mm -hmm. selfish, greedy bastards. So stay yeah. out of that. Don't be a monster. There's no need for it if you do your job right and you work on building your pipeline strong for the future, not immediately and panicking. Then you're not going to behave like an idiot in front of your customers. So yeah. more of them will buy. Remember, most of the time that your customers object, it's because you take them there. You create the conditions for them to be nervous, to doubt. So look in the mirror. Matt, how can people get hold of you? Look, great closing thought there, Marcus. I, I love that. Great uh, words of wisdom for listeners. Um, if people want to get in touch with me, I think um, I'm, on, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. If folks would like to send me an invite, tell me you heard me on, on the show and you'd like to learn more, just uh, send, me a, send me a note. I'd love to be connected with you. If you have any follow-up questions, happy to try to answer those for you. Obviously, check out the book. There's a lot more information about this. So each of those behaviors, the JOLT, and an interesting look in the mirror, kind of head snapping, like, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing to, you know, in terms of offering recommendation or limiting the exploration or taking risk off the table. So check that out. And then check out deltaeffect.com. We've got a lot of resources you can download, coaching tools, other content as well, if you'd like to continue your learning journey. Excellent. If you want to get hold of the book, it's The Jolt Effect by Matthew Dixon and Ted McKenna. Fabulous yeah. read. And it should bring you some serious cash in the next quarter or two if you actually follow the advice. Matt, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. I had a great time. Likewise. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. In the meantime, get hold of me. Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And in the blurb, there's a link to talk to me about coaching and training you or your team. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.